0: Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill. And Matthew Dalitz.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Dalitz, editor in chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and as always, I'm here with the person that I couldn't do without, Richard Hill. Hi, Richard.
0: Yes, and I can't do without you, Matt. So it's the <laughs> Matt and Richard show. Uh, with one uh, of those uh, wonderful the, the chipmunks, those, those chipmunks <laughs> in, <laughs> the, <laughs> in the cartoons, indubitably. Uh, but it, but it is great, you know. We're we're, we're still here, still enjoying ourselves, mm-hmm. still uh, still doing uh, you know what we can. And we'll have someone an, an unusual introduction to someone. Here's a good
1: mate of mine. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, but, oh, it's often a good mate of yours, isn't it?
0: <laughs> no, it's amazing what you have. And I do I do recommend to people that when they they go out to conferences and when they mm-hmm. get back to face and face stuff. When I was over there doing these things, I just go up and say hello to people. And, yeah. <laughs> and then eventually I remember uh, it was about Mary's and conferences and one of the guys said, well, why don't you come and have a drink with us? And so we went and, and these sorts of engagements and connections uh, then later on become the joys of doing the work we're doing now. And so we have yeah. a lovely friend of mine, Lynn Lyons, who's been doing such amazing work with anxiety over the years. Uh, Tell us a bit more about her seriously rather than just uh, my my, uh, social (laughs) chat.
1: Okay, so Lynn, she's a psychotherapist in Concord, New Hampshire. She's been in practice for 30 years, specializing in the treatment of anxiety in adults and children. She travels internationally as a speaker and trainer on the subject of anxiety, its role in families and the need for a preventative approach at home and in schools. And she's often seen... In the New York Times, NPR, Psychology Day, and a whole lot of other media outlets.
0: Yeah, oh, she loves it. She just says, "Wow, they just keep bringing me up." <laughs> and uh, uh, but she's but she's great. She's great value and uh, and just uh, always you know always wanting to. The purpose of writing our own book was to help people get a framework, and so we do a a good investigation of anxiety in the book. But we also do a special piece uh, talking to Reed Wilson who Reed Wilson who does a lot with anxiety and Reed Wilson and Lynn Lyons have written together so you'll find there's a there's a fabulous book that they've done on anxious kids anxious parents Baker, that's still uh, uh, worth getting so okay the, wonderful the circles
1: the circle comes round <laughs> so before we jump across and say hi to Lynn uh if you do appreciate what we're doing here on the science of psychotherapy podcast and you would like to support us please jump across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net that's our academy site become a member become part of the tribe. We'd love to have you. And we've got a whole stack of uh, courses and uh, videos and articles and a whole lot of stuff for you to get into to help you become a better 21st century therapist.
0: Fantastic. But for now,
1: let's head off uh, to Concord in New Hampshire uh, and talk to Lynn Lyons. Hi, Lynn Lyons. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. So great to meet you.
2: Oh, I am delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: And wonderful to see you again Lynn. it's been like a couple of years for goodness yes.
2: sake. Yes. <laughs> Hi Richard it's nice to see you even though we're seeing each other virtually it's nice to see your face.
0: There you go. There you go. We but but I've known you for quite a while through uh, attending the Milton Erickson uh, That's right. conferences and and we all sit around and and have a lot of fun so We
2: do. We do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We, which yeah. Is great. We've had some we've had some really fun dinners together and it really is uh Everybody thinks that we're there because we're trying to teach people things but we're really just there because we like to hang out.
0: Yeah, which <laughs> with, which is a which is actually a great reason why we need to get back to going uh to live, you know, face-to-face conferences.
2: But I I agree.
0: But we're not here to talk about conferences today. We're here to talk about the where can, we want to get in nice and early on this fabulous new book uh that's oh. coming out. <laughs> now I know it's not till October, but yeah. um but you really got to start going. We we know this with our book. We started uh, several months before and I know you're keen. So this new book, The Anxiety Audit and the subtitle, Seven Sneaky Ways Anxiety Takes Hold and How to Escape Them.
2: Yep, that's it.
0: Now, this is a fabulous thing. So let's just ask the the sort of the standard uh, slightly uh, expected problem. You know, what led to writing this? You know what what was the buildup and and what what brought you into this frame of spending all that time to put this down on paper?
2: So it is actually a little bit interesting story because I was writing another book. I had agreed during Covid to write another book, um which maybe I'll write someday, but boy, it was it was like, Pulling Teeth, that oh, other book, um, and there was a lot going on. I, I thought, you know, I thought I wasn't going to be so busy during COVID, so I thought, oh, what a great time to read a book. And my publisher had been sort of asking me repeatedly, "Will you? Do you want to write another book? Do you write another book?" So I said, "Sure, I'll write another book." And then I started writing it. Oh God, it was agony. So I'm <laughs> I'm in I'm in agony, sure. and um, then so, so my, the, the podcast that I have fluster clucks, which I actually do with my sister-in-law Robin. So Robin and I do our podcast together. She's married to my brother. We love each other. And we did this, this, um, program, this, this training really for our podcast listeners called the anxiety audit, because people were really struggling and, You know, she, Robin was saying, Robin's not a therapist. She's actually like this travel professional extraordinaire. Um, But she was saying, you know, people don't even know what anxiety is. Everybody's talking about anxiety. Don't even know what it is. So we did this program. Uh, People could join in, you know, I don't know. It was like two and a half hours or something. And then I said, this book I'm writing is agony. And she said, well, why don't you write, why don't you turn our course into a book? How hard could that be? right? She, she's never written a book before. She's like, how long could that be? <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was a better idea at the time. Less, so less I, agony. Yeah. Less agony. And it, I think it was less agony. But also the, the topic, I think, was more relevant to what we're dealing with now um, because all we're hearing is everybody's anxious, everybody's anxious, everybody's anxious. Well, what does that mean? And how do you know there are these patterns that show up? So this is really a book for not, it's not a book for professionals. It's a book for everybody that has felt anxious over the last several years, which is everybody. Um, so it was just a better book to write now. And so that's how it sort of evolved.
1: Okay. Wonderful. So, uh, are we able to sort of dive in and maybe just have a sneak peek at some of these seven sneaky ways? Sure, <laughs>
2: sure, sure, sure. So, um, the, the, some of them are very familiar cognitive patterns and they're things that I talk about all the time. Um, But the first, the first big one is the repetitive negative thinking, which is we look at worrying and then ruminating, you know, depending on which direction you go and how people perseverate, how they get caught up in ruminating. I talk a lot about the work of Susan Nolan Hoeksman, how she really looked at ruminating as one of the lead-ins to depression, particularly for women, because I think, honestly, I think probably the demographic for this book is probably going to be more women than men, just the way that, when it, that it goes. Um, but, and, and, and repetitive, negative thinking, how do we get caught in things? So I spend it. The first chapter is really diving into that whole thing. Um, and then I talk about, then go from there. I talk about catastrophizing how, family influences of being catastrophic. I was raised by an Irish Catholic mother, Kathleen Marie Murphy. She's, she's a reformed Irish Catholic, but she's still angry, you know? Um, But um, how, how her, how her family was really catastrophic, um, how it was always, they had an expression in their family, too much laughing turns to crying, which is, just great. Um, so I talk about uh, being catastrophic, thinking catastrophically, predicting parenting catastrophically. I talk about irritability as just this low grade sort of, you know, things aren't going the way I need to go. How do we deal with that? Um, uh, Gosh, I should remember all seven of them seven of them off the top of my head. well well,
0: well, let's 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 wander around. We've got a beautiful start. i mean one yeah. of, one of the interesting things that just immediately comes to to my my mind and talk a little bit more about just this thing of anxiety because mm-hmm. uh, I mean what I was thinking, well, rumination yeah is 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 a great problem.
2: Mm-hmm. but if
0: you're ruminating about the past tends to create a depressive type of state. that's right. But it's ruminating about the future that brings up this anxiety. So, how, how much of the? Uh, what's the the time frame? The anxiety uh, to present, to past, to future. What's the frame well, like? That?
2: Yeah, and that's kind of in general. People say, well, if you're if you're worrying, that sort of has a future goal to it, right? You're anticipating, and people talk about. Anxiety is really about anticipation about what's going to come and ruminating is really about what happened in the past. But the interesting thing about that is for people who are socially anxious, they spend a lot of time going in either direction Mm -hmm. because they ruminate a lot about what they said did they say the wrong thing? Did they offend somebody? They try and use their past experiences to sort of predict what's going to happen in the future. So people who are socially anxious are, they, they'll go in either direction. And then the other thing too is when, and I don't talk too much specifically about this, but if we know we've got this obsessive compulsive stuff going on, they're really big at ruminating and making decisions. And did they make the right decision? And was it the wrong decision? And the really important, thing about rumination is that people who do it all the time do it a lot for one they feel like they're problem solving they feel like they're doing good work right they feel uh, like they're really yeah. they're, you know and and um the other thing about ruminators is that a lot of therapy actually and a lot of people think that therapy should be just this one long rumination process So that when you go into therapy, you should spend a lot of time talking about what already happened, going over what already happened, trying to understand what already happened. And so anxiety. people who are anxious, even though we know rumination is absolutely that risk factor for depression, but actually so is anxiety a risk factor for depression. Mm. I will see this, this ruminative pattern. Parents do it a lot. It's just so, so common in the people that I work with.
1: So you, you spoke about um, family traits. How, how much of this is a learned behavior and how much is like just personality?
2: <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask, you know, and it's always sort of the the nature nurture thing with anxiety. We we sure. can't really tease it out very well because we know that temperament, certain temperaments, there's a behaviorally inhibited temperament, people who uh, it, it tend to be more shy or, or, you know, more sensitive, people who have really... Um, high sensory or low mm-hmm. sensory tolerance. Like all those people, that's that's a predictor of anxiety too. We even see that in babies. We see it in toddlers. But there is undeniably a very strong modeling of this. And a lot of right. the research shows that. And, and the, the way that we can be optimistic about that is that when we do things preventatively to work with the parents, we can really, you know, we can really prevent, we can really take the anxiety train and have it go on to a different track. If you don't do anything about it and you leave it alone, the likelihood of an anxious parent creating an anxious child is about six to seven times greater than if you have a non-anxious parent. So it's there, you know, and it's that combination of factors, but we definitely see the modeling. It's there.
0: It was interesting. I I was just uh, wandering around in our our local uh, uh, public park area and lots of kids, and there were about four or five kids, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, about nine or or, or so, and they were sort of skittling along and running Mm -hmm. things. And there was... There was just this voice came out, and I thought, <laughs> my, my God, who who is that talking? And I realized it was one of the little kids. And she said, Oh, now you shouldn't run, Betty, because you know <laughs> that if you run, that could be doing that. And I thought, <gasps> wow, we're just at this point, we're just in preventative, but we're 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 moving quickly to something that could be yeah. a lot more.
1: But she obviously learned that behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there's an interesting question. You know, where's where do we go from something that's adaptive? You know, mm-hmm. we we're looking out for things and and become maladaptive. Where, where's mm-hmm. that? What's that threshold look like? Yeah.
2: yes, yes yeah. it's
0: different from the kid who's who's actually fallen over, saying, "Don't run," because I've experienced, mm. you know, which is more of a trauma mm-hmm. thing, yeah, mm.
2: right? Right. Yeah, so so when we're looking at when is it helpful? And this is such an important thing when I was I was telling you before we started recording that I spent my day talking to high school students and middle school students. And the thing that I really wanted to emphasize with them over and over again is that it is normal for human beings to worry. It is normal for them to be anxious. We are we are designed that way because it keeps us alive. So to yeah. think that you're not going to feel this way, to think that it it's you're you're gonna go through life without having worry and anxiety is silly. And I think actually we've done a lot of harm with young people in terms of pathologizing a lot of what is really a, a normal part of human experience. Um, that's a whole nother rant that we can get into if you want to. But um, so so when do we know that it's problematic is when it's interfering with what we would consider normal developmental things. So you've got this little group of kids and they're running and you know one of them saying like hey you're too high on the monkey bars or this or that and then we've got another child who you you perhaps could notice who is not going to engage at all. And that child is going to hang back. That child isn't even going to get on the the monkey bars. That child is not even going to go to the park. That child is so worried about something bad happening that they begin to restrict and avoid. Mm. And the problem with the problem with adults that do this, who are modeling it for children, is that that becomes the go-to strategy. And it's a strategy that works like a charm. If you mm. avoid, you, you don't feel this way. So it gets reinforced very quickly and very powerfully in families.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's it's sort of like uh this, this great difficulty of uh, how much how much risk do you allow your children mm-hmm. go to go through in order to learn risk I mean yeah. someone was saying you know i I, I I, I don't want them to make the same mistakes I did. And I said, but how did you learn? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, of course you don't want to, but they're going to, yeah. Well, and I think that that's, you know I, I'm very big on talking about the skills that I want to teach. So when people come to see me, I'm very focused on what are the skills. And one of the biggest skills when I'm talking to, to adults and to kids too, it's the ability to assess reasonable risk. Mm. And when you don't allow that, to happen, you don't learn and kids don't have the ability to assess reasonable risk. And then when they're off on their own, they've got no template for that. They've had no practice for that. It's the same with emotions, right? So if you don't ever let a child feel distressed, how do they know that you can feel really distressed and then feel better later? If you never get your heart broken, Mm. how do you know that a broken heart heals? If you never, if if somebody says, well, I'm never going to get a pet, because i just can't bear the pain of losing a pet. Well mm. then how do you know that that loving a pet is wonderful and then you lose a pet and then you can you can mourn that pet. I mean it's all helping helping kids and helping adults to move through the processes of all these of all these emotions.
1: But aren't, aren't we immersed in a overly exaggerated safety culture where yes. we do want to avoid <laughs> anything that hurts?
2: Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. yeah. and this is why this is why I am so loud and so adamant about the elimination culture is what I call it, is that how do we figure out how to get rid of, right? So can we can we self-medicate? Can we medicate? Can we distract? Can we avoid you know the 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 most popular things that people learn for anxiety are distraction avoidance and calming down those are right. the most popular things that they're taught and all you know and, and all of those have their place of course i mean i hate rats so i'm happy to avoid rats i have no intention of getting over my fear of rats <laughs> distraction distraction has its place you know you've all had experiences where you've been thinking about something and thinking about something and you go oh god i just got to i just got to watch some trashy show on tv or i've just got to have some fun right we distract ourselves we've all certainly found that you know when you're about to lose your mind like stopping and taking some breaths and getting your feet back under you and regulating your nervous system all of those things are so valuable mm. but but for me what i see being taught to people over and over again is that the goal of doing those things isn't to sort of rejigger and take a break it's to get rid of and when mm. people when people say to me, well, I tried that and it didn't work, what they're saying to me is that I was under the impression that I, if I did this breathing or if I used this distraction, that I wouldn't feel anxious anymore, that my worry wouldn't come back. And that's the myth that we really have to work very hard with people to let them know this is a part of being a human being. Yeah. And we can do, we're always adjusting.
0: I mean, it, and it's it's interesting when you look at the two futuristic uh, uh, books that come to the top of the, the mind. Uh, Nineteen eighty-four, of course, mm-hmm. where we're we're controlled by by re, uh, reframing everything mm-hmm. in a, such a way mm-hmm. that that you behave. Although they used fear as a way of control. But Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, you know, where um, mm-hmm. we we just learn how to to modify everything, and this idea that that a harmonious life is this very placid, nothing happening life, where, right? Where right. we learn we learn that, that that harmony is the flow the flow between, as as we mm-hmm. know with uh, Dan Siegel, the flow between chaos and and, mm-hmm. and rigidity, and and we talk about that in our, our book as well. Yeah, and this this uh, the the confidence to flow. Because I just that brings me to this thing of, of um, social competition. and, and mm-hmm. I, I quite often bang the, the, the drum of a, an experiment in England called the Peckham Experiment, which was a mm-hmm. sort of an educational social experiment. And they just let people self-regulate within a, within a, a, a contained environment and over the 10 or 12 15 years of the experiment they didn't have any serious accidents and mm-hmm. they had no bullying uh, uh, because they didn't have this um there wasn't a there wasn't a prize for for being better or worse so this becomes a huge part of anxiety with kids isn't mm-hmm. it the, yeah. the the comparison thing
2: yeah yeah and and so social comparison right we know that when you compare you tend to compare up, you compare the other person up and you compare you down. Mm. Um, what One of the things that's interesting, cause I've been looking at a lot of the research that's coming out now after the pandemic. And it's interesting that there's research that was done. There's data that was taken in October of 2020. And then there's data that was taken in November of 21. And then there's data that's now taken in January of 2022. And we can see it sort of evolving. Mm. And one of the things at the beginning of the pandemic young people, particularly in high achieving environments, were really expressing relief that they were getting more sleep, they were using social media less than they anticipated, and they were spending more time with family. That was at the beginning because they Uh, were feeling relief that they were off of this rat race that a lot of young people are in. Then as it wore on, then the loneliness and the isolation took hold. So we saw a real uptick. They were feeling very distressed about their futures, not able to make plans for their future. What was going to happen when they graduated high school, when they graduated college, how were they going to buy a house, all that kind of stuff. And now actually uh, new a big, big, uh, chunk of data that just came out that said that kids between the ages of 13 and 17 are really talking, the majority of them, the large majority of them are talking about their adapt- their adaptability and their optimism. Oh. So- yeah, so we see we see this this move of sort of like oh thank God I, and, and, and and I can I can sort of relate to this right. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when my whole schedule went you know to nothing, yeah. I was like awesome, right? I mean, I was write a was book, in, yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah <laughs> right, 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 right. I'll write a book. Um, but you know, the, the the week before the the two weeks before the the shutdown, I was in nine different airports. I was exhausted, and then all of a sudden, I had to stay home. I was like, oh, this is pretty sweet. But then, God, you know, month nine, month 10, you're thinking, what's going to happen next? How, how am I, am I ever going to get back on the road? What's going to happen with my practice? And then now we're sort of moving out of it. And I feel I feel pretty optimistic. And in fact, in front of all these students today, I said, I want to congratulate you on the two-year social experiment of you guys being adaptable. And yeah. it's just, we we see the flow of it. And I think that what we really have to pay attention to, and I hope that the book sort of normalizes, I mean, that's what I really wanted to do. I didn't want to talk about their, I didn't want to talk about diagnoses and pathologizing that this is a human experience, but I really, I really want to talk to kids, to young people and to, and to adults too, about how normal all of these ups and downs are. This, yeah. The pandemic wasn't normal. That wasn't a normal experience. But that can we talk to people about the absolute inevitability of things going poorly, of things not going the way you planned it? Because that's what anxious people try and do, right? They try and plan everything out to the minute. And how do you manage that? How do you tolerate the unexpected? We've just had two years of of tolerating all sorts of stuff that we didn't know we were going to have to tolerate.
1: Mm, yeah, and there's there's um, like you said, the anxious person planning. they're mm-hmm. planning to avoid things. And so there's this interesting dynamic of approach and avoid. And we know Mm -hmm. that from our neuroscience that the approach orientation develops a a particular flow, neural architecture, which is a lot more healthy than the avoidance. Mm -hmm. And so do you conceptualize things in this sort of approach avoid way? And we're we're always trying to encourage people to be more approach orientated toward life.
2: Yeah. And I think the way that I talk about it a lot. And this is something too that, so, so Reed, Reed Wilson, my pal, who I wrote two of my books with, he talks about this in just a wonderfully eloquent way. Um, but I really, you know, exposure, right. We know exposure therapy, you step mm-hmm. in. Yep. Um, and I think the goal, and this is, I, I learned a tremendous amount from writing and working with Reed and, um, um, but, but stepping into things, how do we drop the resistance? Mm -hmm. How do we get on offense, right? How do we step in? So we can do exposure therapy, but we can do exposure therapy where somebody's got a a boot in your back and they're pushing you into something. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people think, well, the way you get over anxiety is that you just have to, we just have to force kids to do it, or you have to force yourself to do it. And if we can add that extra element of sort of that approach mindset, that mm-hmm. step in mindset, that get on offense mindset, then we're we're dropping the resistance. Yeah. So, yeah. so that I talk about that all the time. And how do we how do we help people get interested and excited about what they're moving toward, knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable? And how do we make it kind of a game that they're playing with themselves? Yeah, you know, absolutely.
0: Which yeah, is which yeah. is what we we talk a lot about about curiosity curiosity yeah and yep, um, that's right and 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 I've been trying to you know again you, you I know you feel this as well after a while you have sort of been banging a drum mm-hmm. and you think but this idea of play as as a, as a curiosity rather mm-hmm. than as a, a thing because I'm curious for the things that I can uh, uh, hit unexpectedly yes um, and and making unexpectedness. Um, a, a, a delight, as a as a pleasure, right. because we know that predictability and expectation uh, and certainty have become uh, almost sort of weights around our neck, mm-hmm. and and uh, so the kids, you, you know, when you're talking to them, this idea now, this optimism, like. Is there a freeing uh, uh, that you're seeing amongst kids away from uh, I have to live up to things? Uh, It's almost like now, well well done, you're still here. I'm not sure. What are you you, you seeing?
2: Well, I think one of the things I'm seeing is that a lot of the kids, a lot of kids here at least, I don't know how it is in Australia, but certainly here, there is a very prescribed path that they're supposed to take. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to go to high school. A lot of, you know, I've had a lot of seventh and eighth graders say to me, oh, I don't know what I'm going to major in in college. Or even even a lot of freshmen in high school talking about college, this idea that you have to know what you're going to do. You have to have a plan. There's a, there was a lot of talking, there still is, um, about um, the the use of even middle school now, middle school and high school as resume building to then get into a good college, so that you can build your resume, so that you can get a good job. And I think that yeah. what 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 I'm hoping the pandemic, this, this crazy upheaval did for a lot of kids, is show them that even when things don't go in this very sequential, expected, routine way, it actually opened the door for a lot of different possibilities. Mm um and I, I don't know exactly how it's all going to play out um i don't know what it's going to look like for these kids in two or three years the the college admissions process was crazy this year because we had so many kids defer um enormously stressful i had somebody get in touch with me they wanted to um, they wanted their daughter. They told me their daughter was putting together this project to help kids deal with the stress of the college admissions process. And it was going to be her school project. And would I be involved in it? And I sort of knew the mom was kind of running the whole thing. And I thought as she was talking to me about it, that we were talking about like a 16 year old. It was a 12 year old. Wow. A 12 year old. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that the that the upheaval and all of this unexpected stuff and this ability to sort of get, you know, have more flexibility in life. um, I'm not saying that that the pandemic, you know, yay, the pandemic made us all more flexible and adaptable. Um, Because I think I think there's there's two sides of the coin, but I'm hoping that's the that's the drum I've been banging for a Mm. long time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because There's been interesting things. Uh, oh, sorry, Matt, you you go. Yeah, all right. I was just, just going to say we were talking, um, to someone the other day who um runs a um, I'm just trying to think of the name, um, Yuri Rosso, Richard. Yuri Rosso, oh, yeah, what, yes, what, what's, the, what's his thing called? Well, his resilience, His his yeah. program to build resilience, yeah, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, mm-hmm. that's right, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so in talking to Yuri Rosso about resilience, uh, he was saying that 70% of people who think that, you know, they've, they've got up to a 70%, you know, resilience on his scale, um, mm-hmm. that when a real crisis happens, uh, they don't actually handle it terribly well. You have to have mm. be really up there in the 80% or so in, in terms of his resilience uh, score. Um, mm-hmm. And so what, the pandemic has revealed is that we really need to uh, up our game, I guess, um, as a culture in terms (laughs) Mm -hmm. of resilience. So Mm -hmm. whatever has been happening culturally um, for for maybe generations has really reduced our resilience for a crisis.
2: What I have seen for a good long time, the, the pandemic didn't start this, is a real unwillingness to step into the unknown, to step into discomfort, to allow, even to allow people to experience big emotions, right? I mean, it really, so, so I think resilience comes from stepping into things and knowing you can handle it and handling unexpected things and having adventures and going to different places, but it, but we really have moved away um, and I think in, in parenting a lot of sort of letting the chips fall where they may, so to speak, and it's not all or nothing. Cause then people will freak out on me and they'll say, Oh, what do you think? We're just like, like, let kids raise themselves. We're not even just no, no, no. I don't just show up to the airport and hope there's a flight for me. I do plan. I do prepare, but how do we allow kids to be okay? And when they're having these big emotions, how do we teach them to manage those emotions so that they're not overwhelmed by them. So they're not devastated. So they're not, they don't fall apart. Right. We have to teach kids that it's okay to feel these big things.
1: Mm. That's
2: what I think we've gotten Mm. away from. I mean, I, you know, I mean the the stories, I don't know how it is with you guys, but you know, there, there are six-year-olds that are being put on Prozac because they're having mm. difficulty managing. And I just, I just think like a six-year-old,
0: really. Well, and, again, that, that decision of what managing is, this is one of the other problems which mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm writing about again now, um, mm-hmm. th- this idea of when the when the outside world becomes the determiner of your mm-hmm. capacities. Mm-hmm. So, Steve Porges is starting to talk more about this now, the mm-hmm. externalised evaluations and stuff, mm-hmm. and this This great difficulty that comes in in the competitive world, and I was just going to come in before, but it was good what you were saying, Matt, Uh, uh, but I've got relatives in in, uh, Europe, in Italy, Mm. and um, my... Uh, niece was facing these issues at age you know 9 10 11 12 mm-hmm. you know, which school she went to at mm-hmm. that stage and she i remember uh, her year 6 she had a a 2 hour oral exam where, yeah. where you know and in order to do so it actually played very very badly in 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 her life Mm-hmm. but um she would be 15 now so we're talking mm-hmm. you know back in the 90s mm-hmm. and
1: mm-hmm. then
0: we you know we've got a lot of friends in india uh where it actually becomes uh you know complicated uh, as we do in America with um, with social rules you know who mm-hmm. you know social uh, uh, uh privilege and so on and mm-hmm. so forth so there's mm-hmm. th- there's, there's a mass stuff that this um uh, the, the other thing that COVID did was that it, it kind of struck everybody equally, which was had some benefits. Uh yeah, in,
2: uh, it, it sort of it sort of struck people equally because we know that it, at of, least yeah. in this country there were very big disparities um in terms of what resources you had. So if yeah, how you, to manage,
0: yeah, the ability right, to manage. It,
2: you um, know, we know yeah. that people who were married did better than people who weren't married during COVID if you, the people who got hit the hardest, mothers with young children, enormously Mm. difficult because they were the ones that were giving up work and giving up income and trying to take care of kids and do school at home. Certainly people who had an income of less than $20,000 a year, which means that they were just living, you know, very close to the poverty line anyway, very, very difficult. And people who were struggling with, anxiety and depression going in who hadn't gotten help and didn't have res- resources. One of the things that I certainly saw was cracks became chasms yeah. P- people that were, people that had anxiety or people that had learned about it. I mean, uh, I, you know, the, the, the little kids that I teach, they would say like, oh, well, Lynn is talking about this and this and how to handle how to handle the COVID. And they would say, oh, we already know all that because they had learned the vocabulary they were talking about it. But I think it's I think it's I think it's been an interesting, an interesting journey into the unexpected mm. and seeing how people come through the other side. And yes, do God. they have the, do they have the resilience to do that?
0: Yes, and, and, di- the, and di- how we manage a common foe. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. How we?
2: Yep, that's a very uh, good way to put it. How yeah. we manage a common foe. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Who was it? The, the uh, which one of the, the Grace Tyson saying? You know, we've just been shown that it, it, all our movies show us that when the aliens come, we'll all band together and uh, and and defeat them. Uh, actually, COVID showed us we probably won't. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Which, I know.
0: So there is, yeah. but I don't want to sort of take it in a discouraging line. It's really just this. Yeah. Because as we sort of come to a bit of a wrap up, we want to just wrap up here on the escapes, the mm-hmm. that wonderful thing. How to escape this? Uh, how to escape? How to shift? How to not be engaged mm-hmm. in it? Uh, what's what's mm-hmm. the approach you take? Uh, you take there other than the things you've already said, which have yeah, been-
2: yeah. So I think one of the things I say over and over and over again is that small adjustments matter, because right, yes. when you're when you're dealing with this people get overwhelmed because they say oh i'm going to have to change so much or do stuff and really small adjustments matter they they add up i tell a i tell a story in the first chapter how i was uh w- w- my husband and i were driving to go hiking and a weird thing happened with the car and I almost died, but I didn't. I was fine, but it was a near miss. It's what my mom calls the close call file. You'll have to read the book to, to you'll have to yes. read the book to You're, get the story. Please, yeah. I must yeah. read it. I'll be yeah. getting it. Yeah, yeah, it's a cliffhanger. Um, but <laughs> no, but yeah. what I talked about is that, at, so so as I'm hiking, because this was on the way to a hike, I knew as I hiked up the mountain, I knew I was going to replay this near miss over and over and over again. I knew my brain was going to do it and my goal was that when the thought popped up when I started what ifing, when I started saying, "Oh no, if you know, I, I how did that happen?" I was just going to shift back. I was just going to adjust back. I was just going to adjust back. So that's a huge thing that I talk about all the time. Small adjustments matter. It is Um, There is a huge emphasis on connection in the book. I start with three separate stories, and the three words that I really carry through the book are that we need to simplify, demystify, and connect. And so the importance of not doing this alone, the importance of normalizing it, the importance of... How do you let people know what you need? Because we tend to suffer in silence. Both depression and anxiety are very internal states of being. So I emphasize that a lot. And I give a lot of just concrete tips of sort of say this, don't say this. And if you're experiencing irritability, here's a conversation to have with your spouse about it. And if you are a ruminator, here are some things that you can do to sort of break out of that pattern. So there's a lot of concrete stuff. Every chapter has a, you know, sort of, I talk about the pattern and then I say, okay, what to do about it. But the emphasis is, I'm really just trying to simplify this. I feel like we can do we can do a much better job in the mental health profession of just talking in common language instead of using yep. all this psychobabble stuff that people just are like, Bleh. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Okay. That's, that's fabulous. Uh, you know, going through there and, uh, and these are the sorts of things that we're trying to do. And that was, uh, as you bringing up with Jamie Drury, this is what we're trying to, to say this, the, the, the knowledge base, doesn't necessarily have to emerge in your language, in your mm-hmm. semantic, Germanic uh, structure. In fact, that's even the point. Of the more knowledgeable you are as a practitioner, the more likely you are to be able to say it in a in a, an appreciable, um, yeah. engaged sort of inter, yeah. interpersonal yeah. way. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. And it's
2: it's about telling stories, isn't it? It's yeah. about I, yeah. I I use metaphors all the time. I use analogies. I tell stories. And it just, I just think that we need to make all of these conversations as accessible as possible and not cloak it in this language that 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 sort of pushes people away. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, Lynn, I certainly appreciate this simple, clear connection we've had. <laughs> and, uh,
2: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
1: and I uh, really appreciate you being here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Great Thank to talk to you. It. See you again
0: before too long, I hope.
2: Yes, I hope so too. Uh
0: yeah, always Always, uh, as we said in the beginning, great value, uh, a yeah. great grasp of things, terribly personable, um, and she does all this work as she was talking. She's talking today to hundreds of kids, so she's just uh, got this real wonderful ability to say stuff in a way that makes so much sense, yet it has enormous depth. So yeah. can't can't Not recommend her, her her book Seven Sneaky Ways Anxiety Takes Hold and How to Escape Them in her book The Anxiety audit. So jump in, um, you know, pre-order it now or at least put it on your list because that will be the one to purchase um, released
1: in October of this year. Absolutely. And uh, we might catch up with her again later in the year as that draws closer. She's uh, such good value to talk to. Now, talking about books, don't forget we have our book out as well, the Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy, now available in paperback. So uh, we'll leave a there's always a link in the show notes for that one as well. Yeah, and if you've already bought the book and you're
0: enjoying it, if you're not enjoying it, we don't want to <laughs> no, don't say anything. But if you're enjoying it, it's actually really good in these all algorithms and things. If you just pop into Amazon uh, or wherever you uh, wherever you bought it from, and just pop a little review, pop a little uh, comment yeah. or jump in and give us uh, some stars. Five are great. But
1: anyway, <laughs> but please do that. That would be very helpful for us. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And we'll catch you next time. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to the scienceofpsychotherapy.com